This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Hello, this is Patrick. Thanks for listening. I wanted to let you all know about Behind the Knife's brand new suture practice kit, knot time board, and detailed how-to videos. So we put this resource together to ensure that anyone learning surgical skills is ready to dominate the day. The suture kit contains everything you need, including high-quality surgical instruments, multiple different types of suture, and a best-in-class suturing pad. The knot tying simulator has features for beginners and for those with more advanced skills. The simulator includes a freestanding hook that's ideal for high repetition knot tying practice, a hook that is set within a cylinder that replicates tying knots in a deep body cavity, and adjustable bands to simulate tying knots under tension. We're also particularly proud of our 16 how-to videos for both right and left-handed learners. These are high-quality videos that take you through key surgical skills step-by-step. The videos cover a number of high-yield topics including common instruments, knot tying skills, subcuticular suturing, and how to close a port site, among others. Check out the show notes or head to our website at BehindTheKnife.org for more information. Welcome back to part two of our discussion about the American Association of Endocrine Surgeons Guidelines for the Definitive Management of Secondary and Tertiary Renal Hyperparathyroidism. In part one, we focused on the impetus for creation of these guidelines, the differences in evaluation and indication for surgery when seeing patients with renally mediated hyperparathyroidism in preoperative planning. In part two, we'll focus on intraoperative and postoperative management, parathyroid autotransplantation, renal transplant recipients, morbidity, and mortality. This was recorded live from the 2023 annual AAES meeting in Birmingham, Alabama. All right, let's dive into the operative management of these patients, and let's first talk about the, the patients with secondary hyperparathyroidism. So if you want to review the options for surgical management in terms of the procedures performed. Yes, yeah, so you can... Do a subtotal parathyroidectomy where all four glands are first identified and examined. And in this case, the majority of the tissue is resected and you leave behind a well-vascularized pedicle um, and most of, uh, of the most normal appearing gland. Um, we also can do a total parathyroidectomy with an autotransplant where you look at all four glands and then a portion or all of the most normal looking gland is an autotransplanted to a site that's determined by the surgeon. And this can be with or without a thymectomy. And then the last um, operative decision is whether or not you want to do a total without autotransplant. And that's when you look at all four glands and take out all the tissue. Um, this should ideally not be done without a thymectomy um, because then that the rate of hypo, current hypoparathyroidism when you do a thyroidectomy is very high. So how much tissue when you do a subtotal? And a lot of times people call it three and a half gland parathyroidectomy. And I always like to tell the residents... Um, that um, when we say half gland, what we really mean is trying to trim it down to a, a normal size remnant, which is about three by four by five millimeters in, in patients with primary hyperparathyroidism. 
What do you like to trim your, your remnant down to in these patients? Yeah. I think it, for me, it really depends on what the status of their kidney is. So someone who has end-stage kidney disease and is not yet on dialysis, if we put those patients in a normal situation, it's really tough to make them and persons, people that are on dialysis as well. If you correct them, they're going to be hypocalcemic to a normal range. So you want their PTH to be, um, when they're not in the operating room, <laughs> to be around 300, three to because that's when they're going to have optimal bone health. Um, so you don't want them to have a normal amount of parathyroid tissue. So it's, it is a chunky remnant. So I usually do somewhere around 60 milligrams. Um, some of it's just eyeballing. I just know that it should be a little bigger than what I would usually leave in a primary hyperparathyroid patient. Yeah. So I think that's, that's definitely changed over the years where, um, you know, when, when we were trained years ago, it was kind of do the operation the same way that you do for primary hyperparathyroidism when somebody has four gland disease and really, really trim that remnant down to a normal size gland. But what you're saying is you want to leave a little bit more mm-hmm. um, and your optimal range is, is up in that 250, 300 range, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so I think that's a really important point because I, I don't think a lot of surgeons um, know that. Um, and, uh, and so that's great to, to mention. So Jessica, um, can, you, can you review some of the data on the differences between subtotal parathyroidectomy versus total parathyroidectomy with autotransplant? Yeah, absolutely. So in the different populations, among secondary hyperparathyroidism, there really has only been one randomized controlled trial that looks at this. So this study had a population of 40 patients, and they reported that there actually was a higher rate of reoperation of 10% um, in patients undergoing subtotal parathyroidectomy compared to those undergoing a total parathyroidectomy with autotransplant, which was 0%. Um, And then these patients also had uh, more significant symptomatic improvement according to this study. However, other studies have found that total parathyroidectomy with autotransplantation had actually a longer operative time, longer postoperative length of stay, and then lower calcium levels at one month post-op, as well as a higher requirement for vitamin D supplementation. And so also subjectively, I think patients also feel more symptoms or have higher rates of hungry bone uh, amongst those that receive the total with an autotransplant, since that autotransplant takes some time to kick in. So uh, the in the secondary population, um, both groups can be successfully treated with either method. However, given similar recurrence rates, uh, the choice of the operation should ultimately be left to the surgeon. So in tertiary uh, hyperparathyroidism, there really haven't been any randomized controlled trials. Um, persistent hyperparathyroidism was reported in 1.3% and uh, recurrent hyperparathyroidism in 7.6% of patients undergoing subtotal parathyroidectomy um, compared to 0% persistent disease and 4% recurrent disease in those undergoing total parathyroidectomy. So similarly, you're seeing a higher rate of recurrence, um, but your initial postoperative patient morbidity can be higher, again, in these populations receiving the totals. Um, and so similarly, we recommend the, the guidelines recommended similar um, similar findings where the surgeon should decide and base their decision of operation, uh, including incorporating the risks and benefits of each into what they decide to do. Okay. So Sophie, you mentioned thymectomy and classically the operation that many of us were taught uh, was 
foregland exploration, removal of abnormal parathyroid tissue, um, and uh, and leaving a appropriate size remnant, um, along with thymectomy. And the reason for thymectomy was because of the increased risk for ectopic supernumerary glands, which most commonly will be down in the thymus. Um, and and so, what's your take on this? What do you do? Is that do you do a thymectomy in everybody, or does it depend on the patient or the situation? Yeah, I think it somewhat depends. So routinely, and the guidelines we recommended that people should consider doing it routinely um, because it does reduce recurrence. We think it reduces recurrence rates, right? So if um, a patient's having a total without autotransplant, they should not have a thiamectomy, though, because if you're taking everything out um, and that graft isn't taking or you're not doing an autotransplant, then your risk of permanent hypoparathyroidism is very high, um, especially if you're taking out those supernumerary glands that they might be relying on. Um, the other scenario that I think is okay to exclude thymectomy and not routinely do it is if you do preoperative imaging and you rule out something in the mediastinum, which is why I don't routinely do it because I routinely am getting cystic UV scans. So. There is data, though, that suggests that the thymus has some um, embryologic parathyroid rest cells that can still produce parathyroid hormone. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are some studies that do cite these as sources of recurrence in patients with secondary and tertiary hyperparathyroidism, so without having an overt parathyroid gland, but some of this embryologic rest cell material can still lead to excess recurrence. Yeah, I think the longer that I've gone in my career, um, the less that I will um, perform thymectomy necessarily. And, And a lot of time I take into consideration if I'm leaving a remnant uh, as an inferior gland, then that blood supply, that that yeah. blood supply and venous drainage is coming um, often involves thymus, right? So you have to be very, very careful. And so usually if I've found all four glands and I'm going to um, trim and create a remnant uh, using one of the inferior glands, I will take a good look and feel and often will um, uh, open up the, the, you know, dissect down through the capsule of the of the thymus and look for, you know, any parathyroid tissue. And if I've done imaging beforehand, then I take a good look in that in that area too. Mm-hmm. And and so I think it's um I do it on a on a selective basis. So um I think um you know one of the things that we probably all struggle with as surgeons intraoperatively in these patients is the morphology of the glands. And because of the chronic stimulation, they often become quite large and bulbous and spherical, whereas in a lot of the primary hyperparathyroidism patients, they're elongated. Um, and they set up better for being trimmed. The the spherical ones, or they've got some inflammation, trying to trim them down to an appropriate size remnant, um, you know, can be difficult. And do you, do you have any uh, tips, Sophie, for, for how to trim these spherical um, glands, or do you just say, I really can't do a good job of that, and, and so end up auto-transplanting? Yeah, I'm actually interested to hear what your um, tips are, too, because this is, you're right, it is, tar- it is pretty hard when they're pretty big glands and you're trying to trim them down, um, and also, you, I always want to clip it because I don't know if I'm ever going to have to go back, so I, know, so I want some sort of marker. Uh, we do have large clips, so I will clip across it with a, a larger clip and that kind of marks it at the same time. Um, and then I will trim that, the part that is coming out above the clip. Um, it is tough though, especially because if you, if you just trim it without something 
helping with hemostasis, then you have a large bleeding gland. But... Right. So, and obviously in thyroid and parathyroid surgery, uh, we want as, as little bleeding uh, as possible um, because a little bit of blood in the neck is a, is a significant yeah. risk for a neck hematoma that can impact the airway versus, you know, um, you can put liters into the abdomen. So um, it, it is um, difficult. And so I, um, you know, I will try to trim if I can. I always prefer to do a, a subtotal. Um, but if they are, they've had been on dialysis for years, and often those glands are, are fairly inflamed and, yeah. and spherical. And so I'll end up doing a total with an autotransplant. Um, so one of the other things we should talk about that is discussed in the guidelines is that you do want to see all four glands first and then, um, decide what your, which gland you're going to try to trim. Because if you, um, uh, disrupt the blood supply to that, then you have other glands to trim. Uh, you do not want to start taking glands out and then end up with the last gland trying to trim that. Uh, I think that's an important concept to get across too. Um, but, uh, if we are taking all glands out and going to auto transplant tissue, um, I will, tr any tissue that I take out, I will try to get it into some ice saline and it sits, uh, in the room on ice, just like a transplant. Uh, so that if there is some sort of delay, um, that, that it is, uh, preserved as much as possible before I can get it back into an appropriate, um, intramuscular pop pocket or subcutaneous pocket. Um, so one of the other questions that comes up, and I think there's um, a lot of uh, different practices out there, is whether or not a parathyroid hormone level uh, should be drawn after subtotal parathyroidectomy. Uh, what, are, what are the advantages, disadvantages? What do the guidelines say? Do you really need to do PTH monitoring? Uh, why would you do PTH, PTH monitoring? And, and any pitfalls to this given the prolonged clearance of PTH? What's your personal practice, Sophie? Yeah, there is um, your PTH kinetics when your kidneys and even your liver are not working perfectly are off. So the reason we know that PTH levels drop the way they do and why we use um, it in the OR for primary hyperparathyroidism is because we the PTH kinetics are normal. So we know at 10 minutes it should be dropped by half. Um, in kidney disease, that's not necessarily the case. So it can take a long time for your PTH to drop in these patients. Um, so in the guidelines, we said that if patient, if someone is using it, they should know the limitations of it, which is um, you might not get a drop by half while you're in the OR, and you might be starting out in the thousands, so you're probably not going to be dropping to a normal range. Um, so what I tend to do is I see the patient, I understand their kidney status, um, the level of their disease, and what I think needs to come out in terms of parathyroid tissue, and then I write what my plan is in the operating room. And in my clinic, in my clinic notes, so I can hold myself accountable. Um, so then I'm not tempted by the numbers in the OR to do something different. Um, I do draw PTH levels up until at least 20 minutes, um, understanding that I don't necessarily change my practice based on that. And uh, we put out a survey actually to the AES membership, and a lot of people do that where they'll get the numbers and don't change or go back in if the numbers are still high. Um, it's reassuring when it drops by 50%, and that's a lot of the studies say. If you drop 50 to 60%, then you probably have a cure. Um, but I know that what I'm seeing in the OR the next morning is going to be vastly lower than what I see the day I'm in the OR. So um, I get them. I don't really change what I do based on it, though. Yeah. Jessica, what are you going to do in your practice? 
Um, I think I see a slightly higher yield or utility for it in a tertiary hyperparathyroidism patient where the kinetics are more likely to be closer to that of primary hyperparathyroidism. So I think in secondary, I, I probably personally won't choose to do intraoperative PTH. I may consider it in a tertiary case. Um, but if I were to do it in a tertiary case, I think it's important to draw. And the studies do also demonstrate that it's important to expand your time frames, drawing it at 15 or 25 minutes rather than 10, 15 minutes. Yeah, I think um, PTH monitoring in secondary hyperparathyroidism is definitely different than in primary hyperparathyroidism uh, due to the clearance issues. But I, my personal practice and I... Um, you know, uh, the pendulum has swung a little bit over the course of my career where early on I would do a foregland exploration and subtotal parathyroidectomy or a total with an autotransplant. I would do a thymectomy and uh, really kind of clear out the neck, take a good look around, and and um, and I would I would not do PTH monitoring. And, and then I had some uh, patients with persistent disease, and so then I said, oh, I need to find the patients that have ectopic supernumerary glands. And and then over the last probably, you know, seven or eight years, I've I've gone back where I've said the the risk of a, you know, supernumerary disease is pretty darn low. I'm gonna do my foregland exploration and I may or may not take out the thymus depending on what else is going on in the case, risk to the nerve or something, or where my where my uh, remnant is going to be left, um, and I tend not to do PTH monitoring okay. at this point. Um, so it, it fluctuates, and I think it, it depends on the individual patient, too. And then our practices, I think, probably are a little bit different among surgeons in terms of the extent of, of exploration for tertiary hyperparathyroidism, where some will treat it like primary hyperparathyroidism and try to do a, a directed parathyroidectomy and use intraoperative PTH my own personal practices to do a foregland exploration on everyone. Um, and so I'm usually, if I'm going to do a foregland exploration, I'm usually not doing PTH monitoring unless I can't find a gland. Um, and so I will always draw a PTH level at the beginning of the case. Um, but if I've found all four glands and I'm convinced that I'm not seeing anything else obvious in the neck, I will not, I will not complete the operation by checking PTH levels, but I do like to have it at the beginning in case I can't find a gland. And then I, I use the, I check the levels to see if I need to really go on and explore, um, to find that, that fourth gland. Um, cause sometimes it's normal and you're, you're hunting for something you didn't need to try to find. Yeah, we, we do know that in tertiary, um, even if they have a normal kidney function, the parathyroid clearance still isn't the same as if someone has never had kidney disease. So it is really important in my mind to know what you're doing beforehand and kind of hold yourself to what your operative plan is and not be tempted by the numbers. I think at the end of the day, too, the important thing is to discuss preoperatively with your patients that recurrence, the risks of recurrence and have an in-depth conversation with them on just the possibility of that so they don't think that this surgery has a 100% cure rate. I think that's an important point as well. Yeah, that's a really good point, Jessica. Um, absolutely true that the cure rates are, are not as high as for primary hyperparathyroidism. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. 
Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Oh, 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 O'Reilly! You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. All right. Let's talk about the specifics of how to auto-transplant parathyroid tissue. Because um, it's not as easy as it seems. Um, I think... Uh, the medical students know from reading their, their books um, that uh, we auto-transplant tissue to the brachioradialis, but there are other areas that we can auto-transplant to. Some will auto-transplant to intramuscular pocket pockets, and others will auto-transplant to subcutaneous tissue within the fat, and that has to do with recurrence rates. And so, Sophie, what do you do? Um, do, you, do you mince your tissue... Um, and put it in one pocket, multiple pockets. Where do you put it, and what what cons- what um, considerations do you do you take, or um, what goes through your mind when you're thinking about um, how how to uh, auto transplant parathyroid tissue? Yeah. So when I um, go to do auto transplant and secondary tertiary hyperparathyroidism, I know that those pa- those glands are abnormal tissue, so they're hyperplastic or adenomatous, um, and so I want to put them somewhere that's if I need to figure out if that's the source of my recurrence that I have a tool to be able to do that um, so I use the brachioradialis um, and either forearm in patients that are on dialysis or have been on dialysis I try and use the arm that either has a fistula or graft that they're no longer going to be using um, or I try and talk about it with the nephrologist beforehand I think it's just important to recognize that what you're putting might interfere with someone else's operation in the future. Um, so I put it in the forearm and then um, I do mince it up and put it in one pocket. Um, ideally, it, it's not a pocket that's bleeding because if it is a bleeding pocket and I close it up, then it's going to cause ischemia and that parathyroid is not really going to survive. So a dry, clean, muscular pocket, um, then close the muscular fascia over it and then I mark it with a clip and a permanent suture so I know where it is if I need to go back. If the patient then has recurrence in that case. I'm not sure if it's a parathyroid rest in their neck or if it's my auto transplant and I can do a Casanova test where um, I draw some blood from the contralateral arm and to get a PTH level, put a blood pressure cuff up um, so that I'm reducing the blood flow back from that auto transplant. And then after 10 minutes, draw PTH level from the opposite arm. And if it drops, then I know it's probably my auto transplant that's caused the recurrence. And if not, that is probably something coming from the neck. Um, so yeah, that's how I tend to do it. I usually use a muscle and not the fat belly because I know muscle has a lot better vascular supply. And if I'm auto transplanting, it usually means that I've not left something in situ and I want to give that tissue the best shot. So that's why I'm, I would probably not use fat. Um, yeah. So there, it's interesting because there's a, a European study, um, that, uh, is from, years ago, um, where they actually looked at auto-transplanting into the subcutaneous fat versus the muscle. And the recurrence rate uh, was higher in the muscle 
um, but the rate of the autotransplant not taking was higher in the subcutaneous tissue. So there are pluses and minuses. Um, but I think the brachioradialis is probably the most common site. Um, I think for listeners, it's really important to understand exactly what you were describing, that if it's in the brachioradialis muscle, you can um, understand whether or not it's your autotransplant that's causing uh, your elevated PTH levels, um, or if it's something in the neck. And if you put your autotransplant back in the neck in the sternocleidomastoid muscle, um, you cannot do that. Um, occasionally you can do some selective venous sampling, but it would still be incredibly difficult to figure out if it was your autotransplant or an ectopic gland or supernumerary gland that you missed um, mm -hmm. at that first operation. So I think um, autotransplanting parathyroid tissue is different in these operations um, versus when you're autotransplanting parathyroid tissue in somebody undergoing thyroidectomy who has normal mm -hmm. parathyroid glands. I was always taught any abnormal parathyroid tissue should be autotransplanted somewhere other than the neck so that you can understand what where the issue is coming from. Um, and I do, I will usually uh, put a couple little small titanium clips on the on the uh, muscles and mark it, and then also put in a, a proline stitch so that I can find it. Um, and I think, you know, I, I do tend to make a couple pockets, and the reason for that is if one hypertrophies in the future, I can go to clear out the parathyroid tissue from one and then check my levels and see if I've taken out enough, and then I don't have to disturb the others. I will say that um, I did learn uh, that um, uh, that you do not want to inject your parathyroid autotransplant, the minced tissue. If you inject it, uh, which some people do uh, using a large bore tip, um, that force will spread all those autotransplanted pieces all along the muscle. And uh, it is a nightmare going back and trying to figure out where those are and get all of them out uh, over time. So I do not do that. I will place them very carefully in a pocket. Well, one of the most important parts of care in these patients is the postoperative care. So Sophie, how do you how do you counsel these patients in terms of what they should expect after surgery while they're in the hospital? Yeah, so I talked to them about how they're they have a risk of hungry bone syndrome and that they might need IV calcium or high calcium dialysate um, while they're in the hospital. And so I preempt people by telling them that they're probably going to be in the hospital for a week or longer. Occasionally, they will be able to be discharged at three days, and I'd rather exceed my expectation than go the other way. Um, I do tell them that they're not going to be in the hospital because they're sick, and I think that that's important um, because otherwise I think they're wondering why they're there um, and tell them kind of the risk of what the risks of hypocalcemia are. Some of the studies actually show for secondary hyperparathyroidism, the range um, of the mean postoperative length of stay runs from four to 10 days compared to tertiary hyperparathyroidism, where the mean length of stay is more closer to 2.2 to 3.2 day, uh, days in the literature. So it, it is different as well, depending on which you are operating on for. So how do you manage their, their calcium? There are some surgeons who you know, right out of the operating room, put them on IV calcium, and there are others um, who will put them on, on oral calcium. And, and that is, and I think those who start them right away on IV calcium are anticipating the hungry bone syndrome and, and want to kind of get ahead 
of the curve and then uh, and then be able to slowly back the IV calcium down. Um, not everybody needs that, and so that's why some people don't don't put them on IV calcium. But what do you do? Yeah. So I don't start them initially on IV calcium. I start them on oral calcium and continue their calcitriol um, and then get labs every six hours because I kind of want to see that they're holding their calcium levels. If they start downtrending, um, then I would start IV calcium, um, and especially if their phosphate also starts downtrending. Um, and then I would start the IV calcium and replace the phosphate phosphate before it's, um, before it's low. So if it's downtrending in these patients and they're on a phosphate binder pre-op, and they're now normal or and trending down, then I replace them. I don't wait for it to go low. Um, also, replace their mag. I think that that's something that sometimes gets overlooked. Um, you can't really replace their calcium without their magnesium being placed or replaced. Uh, and then start to. I usually start to wean the IV calcium once they've had two normal calciums or calciums above eight. Really, that's what we kind of do. Yeah, I think that's that's also important too. Is what is the what is the goal of the calcium, right? So it's not the same as with primary hyperparathyroidism. Um, I think most patients with primary hyperparathyroidism, you know, we start to see symptoms of perioral tingling or tingling in the in the fingers or toes or something like that when their serum calcium is less than eight point zero. Um, yeah, and that's different for the patients with secondary hyperparathyroidism. The goal is not necessarily to have them in a normal range, um, they can actually drop quite a bit lower. They're used to being there already uh, for many, many years, and, and so they can actually drop quite, quite low. Um, so, you know, trying to keep them up in a normal range is not really the goal that you want to have for them. Um, and again, I think working with your multidisciplinary team and nephrology team to kind of come up with something where the goal is to get them to the point where they're on enough oral calcium that they can get from one dialysis session to the next where they're on a high calcium bath and then they can get supplemented as needed. The guidelines talk about reinstitution of dialysis along with how collaboration with the nephrology team in terms of the type of dialysis used is important in the care of these these patients. So can you can you talk a little bit about that, Sophie? Yeah, so I usually let the nephrology team know that we are planning to do an operation for secondary hyperparathyroidism. And once we're done with the operation, let them know that we're done and that the patient is going to be in the hospital. Uh, we also communicate with them that there's the risk of hungry bone, which usually they're very on board with, um, and that we'd want them to administer high di- calcium bath um, to help with the facilitating their calcium levels, um, coming back up and mitigating their length of stay in the hospital from hungry bone syndrome. Um, sometimes in that media post-operative period, once you communicate that, they might do dialysis more frequently than the patient usually gets. So it's sometimes two, two, three times um, where it's every day. Um, and then once everything seems to kind of be stabling out, they might um, put them back on their regular dialysis schedule. I will ask you one question um, is that, uh, and we just recently ran into this, and I, th- I think it'll probably happen more frequently, is that patients that do peritoneal dialysis, mm-hmm. Um, you know, managing their calcium or um, when they do, you know, home PD. Uh, how, how do you, do you do anything different in terms of calcium management? Because our concern was that, you know, it, we usually have that safety net of they're actually going to dialysis and they're able to check their calcium levels frequently and treat it during dialysis. And that's not necessarily possible if they're doing home peritoneal dialysis. So do you change your management at all? Yeah. 
It's I honestly I think of those patients a little bit more like um, the end stage kidney patient that's not yet on dialysis. Where if they do become hype, like hypocalcemic and have hungry bone, it is hard. And in those cases, I do talk to them about maybe staying in the hospital for. They're probably going to be there for more than a week because I really am relying in that case on the IV calcium and the oral supplementation. Um, if I can get them on calcitriol for like a week beforehand to just help myself, um, then I would do that. They're usually on it at that point. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think it's an interesting population and, and I, I love the concept of hung peritoneal dialysis. I think it's great for the patients, but it does, it does present some challenges in their management when we're talking about parathyroidectomy and, and hungry bone syndrome. Or if you've had to do a total parathyroidectomy and an autotransplant and you're waiting on your autotransplant to kick back in over three to four weeks before yeah. you start to see some production. Let's talk a little bit about persistent disease and recurrent disease. Uh, and I'll say that recurrent disease we should take with a grain of salt because we know that in patients with secondary hyperparathyroidism, their remaining parathyroid tissue is going to be persistently stimulated. And they will at some point have recurrent disease. Um, so I think when we talk about recurrence, that some of the, the percentages that we see, um, you know, are, are something that we should actually probably be expecting. Um, but Jessica, would you would you talk to us uh, a little bit about um, the data on outcomes for these patients in terms of persistent and recurrent disease? Yeah, so persistent and recurrent hyperparathyroidism are not uncommon. Um, unfortunately, there are not a lot of great studies that can really tell you what percentage of patients do get this. I think one of the important things to kind of I think one of the important things to define is how, uh, I think one of the important things to discuss is how we would actually define persistent disease versus recurrent disease. Um, and so persistent disease is typically seen as a failure of the PTH to decrease to a certain threshold after surgery um, compared, to, um, compared to recurrent disease, which is usually defined as initially normal or goal postoperative PTH levels, followed by a subsequent increase in PTH. Um, and so I think one of the issues in the literature right now is that there were no standardized definitions of recurrent versus persistent hyperparathyroidism in the literature. So it's really hard to really know what rate specifically this occurs. From other postoperative outcomes we consider, um, readmission is one that is higher in this population compared to your normal primary parathyroidectomies. So uh, in literature, 4 to 17 percent of patients are typically readmitted within 30 days. Um, and the leading cause of why patients come back after secondary and tertiary hyperparathyroidism is hypocalcemia and electrolyte disturbances. Um, the other main difference between primary and these secondary and tertiary patients are going to be your rates of permanent hypoparathyroidism. In the literature, permanent hypoparathyroidism can be reported in up to 9.2% of patients after surgery for kidney-related hyperparathyroidism. Um, the other complications we typically talk about with head and neck surgery include recurrent laryngeal nerve injury. And so these numbers are pretty similar to your primary hyperparathyroidism population. Um, they, some studies report temporary nerve palsy in up to 15.5%. Um, and then permanent injury is uh, quoted as rates up to 2.1%, which is a little bit higher than your normal. Bleeding can also be seen after surgery. And so postoperative hematoma rates require reoperation in this population are up to 2.1%. So now that we've talked about... Um recurrence, uh, Sophie, 
what were the recommendations from the guidelines about reoperation in these patients? Uh, you know, do you do anything differently when you prepare them for the operating room? Yeah, so reoperations, we're really considering patients who are medica- medically refractory with persistent or recurrent disease. Um, following subtotal, it's really important to go in and identify all remaining parathyroid tissue um, for either patients that have had a subtotal or total parathyroidectomy with autotransplant. Um, in this setting, you would want to get imaging if you hadn't gotten it in the first place to see if there's anything that you had missed that first time. If you didn't do a thymectomy that first time, this is the time when you would want to do it. Um, the goal is really to remove as much parathyroid tissue as possible. Um, and then you're going to make sure you want to do an autotransplant because you're, if you just take everything out and don't put something back in, then your risk of permanent hypoparathyroidism is pretty high. Herb, any other considerations? No, I totally agree with Sophie. I think that that in reoperations for either secondary, tertiary, similar to primary, that's an instance where you do consider using imaging, unlike a patient who has never had surgery. In this case, if you've done, what you're trying to rule out by doing the imaging is the cause of the recurrence due to the um, hyperplastic remnant that you left in the neck in the subtotal or you implanted during uh, autotransplantation or do a, due to a supernumerary or fifth gland some other place. And that's why I think imaging is key so you know what target to go for. And obviously, if it's an additional gland, you can get away with just taking out that gland in whatever remnant that you left, whether it be a subtotal in the neck or your autotransplant, hopefully that will be functioning, you'll be fine. But if it is um, recurrence of your remnant, then if it's in the neck, you want to consider taking that out and then implanting in the arm. Or if it's of the autotransplantate, in the arm, then you've got to debulk that. But so uh, contrary to what I said about imaging in the other instance, I do think this is, and usually I think in this case, the best uh, to do is uh, to do um, a CT or a Sestamibi. And if you're going to do Sestamibi, just remember when they image it, that they include that if you did a forearm graft, that that's included in the imaging. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so if it's your remnant, do you try to trim it again or do you take it out and auto-transplant it? I think you sort of give one opportunity for that to work because, again, this will be your second, at least the second operation in the neck. You don't want to have to do it a third time. So I would definitely take it out of the neck and then implant it in one of the two forearms. Yeah. Okay. Well, something the guidelines don't discuss is the diagnosis of calciphylaxis, and that's usually caused by... Calcium deposition in the small and medium-sized arterioles in the, in the soft tissue leading to chronic wounds. And, and these wounds can become quite large and difficult to manage. Um, sepsis can result from this, and mortality rates can be uh, really quite high. And um, this is especially true for uh, wounds involving the trunk, um, where the mortality rate is much higher than chronic wounds involving the extremities. And it's usually an emergency to treat. So Herb, what's your experience been in treating these patients, um, and, and is your management strategy uh, any different than what we've already discussed in terms of, you know, goal for surgery is usually a subtotal parathyroidectomy um, or a total with an autotransplant? Is it is it different in these patients? Some will say to take all parathyroid tissue out. Yeah, and I think it's dependent upon, the you know, the how sick the patient is and the degree of calciflaxis. Because calciphylaxis is an absolute indication for parathyroidectomy in patients with renal hyperparathyroidism, 
regardless of what the PTH and calcium levels are. Because these patients have a progressive disease that is caused one things by PTH, and the only way to stop the disease is to get rid of the PTH. So this is the one instance where I do do a total parathyroidectomy with no autotransplantation. But that's an important conversation to have with the patient because essentially you're rendering them a parathyroid and they're going to be dependent upon calcium and vitamin D supplementation for the rest of their life. But because this disease has such a high mortality rate, um, uh, that's why uh, the intervention has to be a little more aggressive. And um, again, this is not that common either. So in uh, the patients that I've taken care of that we have been more aggressive just because we want them to survive. Uh, and But it's a difficult situation, but again, a good conversation with the, uh, important conversation with the patient to make them know that they are going to be dependent upon calcium and vitamin D the rest of their life. And we assume usually that's those patients are always going to be on dialysis too, um, that you would not want to do a total parathyroidectomy in somebody who's a potential transplant mm -hmm. uh, candidate. Um, can you want to speak more to that, Sophie? Patients that are going to have a kidney transplant shouldn't be getting a total parathyroidectomy because their risk of hy permanent hypoparathyroidism is so high um, that you're really setting them up to have a, a good long-term outcomes. Okay. Well, we could spend a lot more time discussing many more details, but I think uh, this has been a very robust discussion on a topic that's not easy for many surgeons, and we certainly hope our listeners have gained some practical knowledge from this podcast. I want to thank Dr. Dream. Dr. Chen, Dr. McMullen, for sharing their expertise with us. This document is uh, extremely important as it's really the first set of surgical guidelines to tackle these two similar but different and often overlooked disease processes. Again, this is available through the Annals of Surgery as well as the American Association of Endocrine Surgeons website at www.endocrinesurgery.org. Uh, there are other guidelines for thyroidectomy, parathyroidectomy, for primary hyperparathyroidism, and adrenalectomy that are also housed there. Uh, being uh, able to do a podcast for Behind the Knife here live in Birmingham, Alabama with our great hosts at UAB has been a great way to end our 2023 AAES annual meeting. We'll look forward to seeing everyone in Dallas next year. Let's, Let's go, go dominate the day. day. As we reach the end of the second of this two-part series, we'd like to offer the following takeaway points for part two. Number one, operative management for pre- and post-renal transplant patients is significantly different from patients with primary hyperparathyroidism. It's important to understand the goals of short- and long-term care when planning an operation. Number two, foreland parathyroid exploration should be pursued in patients with secondary hyperparathyroidism, and subtotal parathyroidectomy is preferred over total parathyroidectomy with parathyroid autotransplantation in most circumstances, unless parathyroid gland morphology does not allow for trimming of an appropriate sized remnant. Number three, careful planning regarding the site of parathyroid autotransplantation is necessary, and multidisciplinary input can be sought prior to surgery. Number four, postoperative management of calcium differs between those with secondary and tertiary hyperparathyroidism. Calcium management of patients on dialysis often requires aggressive and multidisciplinary care. And finally, number five, parathyroidectomy in patients post-renal transplant is of value, and surgeons performing parathyroidectomy should be involved early on in the decision-making process of if and when parathyroidectomy should be pursued to maximize preservation of renal transplant function and minimize cardiovascular morbidity and mortality. 
Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.